This podcast is reserved for audiences 18 years and older. Hello, and welcome to Leather Talk with Mr. Bullet Leather 2020. I'm your host, Brandon. Our next guest is a 59-year-old leather dyke who's dedicated the past 30-plus years to making play happen. She's an activist, educator, community organizer, and event producer with a long history of contributions to the LGBT, leather BDSM, and women's communities. She also holds the title of Miss Eagle Leather Baltimore 1992. Get ready for some more leather talk. Mr. Bullet Leather 2020, and today we have Glenda. Hi, Glenda. Hi, Brandon. How's it going over there? Um, we had a hellacious summer storm today. I've got water in my basement. Sounds um, so. Fancy. It's but I also had a fabulous dinner with a bunch of the people that we get together every Thursday at the Clifton Pleasure Club, um, which is our queer little neighborhood social club. Um, we have Thursday night dinner together there. And uh, the Kitchen Witch is on vacation for the weekend. She prefers that because chef is too patriarchal a term for her. Um, so we had uh, Clifton Pleasure Club uh, goes on the road. And our first choice, which was a Thai restaurant, um, their electricity was out because of the storm. So we quickly regrouped and uh, ended up at another location. And there were a dozen of us there. It was one of our regular people's birthday so yeah, it's you know, <laughs> and then a this, loaded day. <laughs> so and you know, and I wasn't even supposed to go to dinner, but my pool, which was down the street, um, I I work out in the pool as often as possible. It's what keeps me walking. Um, and when you have a thunderstorm in Baltimore County, which is where the pool and the restaurant happen to be, um, they have to close the pool for 30 minutes every time they hear thunder. It resets the 30-minute <laughs> clock. We'll um, it's like been lightning and thunder all, you know, it started at like 5 o'clock for your typical mid-Atlantic summer. It was 100 degrees in places today. Thunderstorm. Um, and the epic light show with the lightning and, um, you know, it was quite today. Wow. Quite today. What a day. <laughs> I, I bet it's like midnight over there for you. It is. It is. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I'm, I'm a you're... very nocturnal person. I love um, your night person as well. Uh, well, Glenda, for those of us who might not be familiar with who you are, could you just kind of give us a little snapshot of you? Certainly. Um, my name is Glenda Ryder. Uh, I am out as out can be. So I, that I don't use a C name. I've only ever used Glenda Ryder for everything that I've, I've done in queer community and in leather kink fetish community as well, as well as professionally. I was Ms. Baltimore Eagle 1992. That was the first female Eagle title contest held anywhere in the world. So that was wow. pretty cool. I was also Ms. Brother Help Thyself in 1996, which is a Brother Help Thyself was a, like the uh, Queer United Way 
Uh Um, in the Baltimore, Washington metropolitan area. They existed for, I mean, more than two decades um, and gave away over a million dollars to AIDS-related and queer-related and gender-affirming charities and charitable projects. So they would have with the, they'd team up with the Imperial Court of Washington, D.C. once a year and the leather community would show up and the rodeo community would show up uh, because those were the three kinds of organizations that made up Brother Help Thyself. And we all pack into a huge club and you had to, to win the title, you had to do a drag number, and then whoever collected the most tips, it, you basically bought the title. If you wanted the title, you packed the room with your friends and you told them to bring their checkbooks or their cash. This was you know, way before Cash App. There was a Miss BHT, a Mr. BHT, and then um, and the Miss BHT was always a drag, uh, drag queen. Mr. BHT was usually a gay man, would take that title. And then the Ms. BHT was typically a butcher, uh, like, okay, would usually awesome. take that. The, the title, the technical title of the term was Butch BHT. Butch BHT, um, okay. Yeah, so and, and my technical name of the title is Butch BHT um, 1996. Butch BHT 19. 19- 1996 is what you're saying. 1996, yes. I don't know that you were maybe a glimmer in your father's eye at that point. I was born. I was born. Uh, But before we go on to more details about titles and everything, let's just uh, kind of get more of a mental picture of who you are. Um, Your pronouns, do you go by? I go by she, her, and if you want to use an honorific, it would be sir, is what I feel the most comfortable with. And I see here in your bio, uh, uh, you identify as a leather dyke? Yes, Absolutely. Uh, I'm a leather dyke through and through. I'll be 59 the 1st of September. So, uh, sexual orientation. Um, you know, I often say that the kinkiest thing I do is is have sex with um, with men. That is the kinkiest thing I do. And they're usually attached to um, a pretty fantastic uh, woman. Okay. Uh, mostly because I don't have the time or the energy to vet them myself. Got it. <laughs> uh, I like I like to have a you know I like to have that as an ancillary part of another relationship usually. Um, so it's a it's a it's bisexual, but leaning w- way towards romantic relationships. Um, the vast majority have all been with women. With women, okay. And would you say? Um, well, how long would you say you've been in the leather community? Um, I found the organized leather community uh, the first weekend of April of 1991. I had known about leather since I came out in uh, 1988. And, you know, I'd been having kinky sex long before that. But for actually, you know, because your question was specific, how long have you been in the leather community? Mm -hmm. That is that is the moment where I joined the leather community. Do you remember your first kinky sexual experience? Well, I mean, if you want to call, um, you know, heavy nipple play a kinky sexual experience, um, it would be with the my first consensual sexual partner. I was not quite 18. Yeah, I, w- I would call that kinky. Yeah, he was. Um, I've been um, I've been poly since jump because he, he was my father's girlfriend's other boyfriend. There was a, a significant age, uh, like I was way, I was 10 years younger than Bruce, 
Bruce was, you know, almost 10 years younger than Judy, who was almost 10 years younger than my dad. Um, I do hope my dad went to his grave never knowing that I had a relationship with Bruce because my dad was only Polly because Judy was that hot and he was willing to have what back then they called it an open relationship. Um, It was not by his choice, but he was like, you know, it's what she wants. Well, that's interesting. I I think like the whole Polly, I didn't realize like the whole Polly thing was... um... The language has changed. It's way more pop. It's, you know, yes and no, because, you know, both of my parents went to Woodstock. You know, there's a reason there's a Woodstock poster on my living room wall in the living room I share with my mom. My mom was in the medical tent at Woodstock. My father worked security and spent the whole time ferrying people to the closest hospital that were having bad trips. You know, so they called it, you know, they called it free love then. Mm-hmm. We call it poly now. There's a lot of things that are similar there. So what was that like coming out to parents of like the free love era? Um Coming out to my mom was, um, was I was nervous about it, but she was pretty chill about it. My grandmother was like, you needed to tell me this. <laughs> my, um, I was raised, my grandmother was a very integral part of um, raising me. My mother raised me mostly as a, as, well, part of my childhood was as a single mom. And my grandmother and her extended family was very involved. But my grandmother was like totally chill. And that was the one I was nervous about because she was incredibly Italian Catholic. Uh, But she was also madly in love with my godmother. But they were both way too Catholic to ever do anything about it. It was, I think, no, um, my godmother's daughter also turned out to be a big dyke. And dad, what did dad think? Um, My dad, when I first came out to him, he's like, well... I don't know a whole lot about this, but, um, you know, you're my daughter. And he and I had been um, estranged for a good portion of my life, not by his choice. My mother's family wouldn't tell him where we moved. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) And then so he went on with his life. And then it wasn't too long after we reconnected that I came out, maybe four or five years. So we didn't have a real deep relationship. So I was less stressed about that. And he was like, well... You know, I don't really understand it, but I love you. So, you know. Now, the language that you used at the time, did you come out as like a, a lesbian or a dyke? Uh, lesbian was the term you used with, your, with, the, with the family. Okay. Do you still identify with the term lesbian at all? Absolutely not. But let me tell you one last thing about coming out to my dad, because about three years after I came out to him, he had met two of my two of my early lovers. Mm-hmm. And he and I are having dinner one night, and I was really glad that he did not say this while I had liquid in my mouth because he's like, you know, Glenda, I still don't understand this whole gay thing, but you do have fantastic taste in women. (laughs) It's like, thanks, Dad. I love it. I love it. (laughs) You know, he did what he could. Yeah. He he, he (laughs) put it on his terms. I grew up on the gas tank of his motorcycle. You know, I, I really liked my dad a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I miss that guy, but yeah, definitely use the term lesbian with the family because it's the term that they would understand. Okay. It is not a term I identify with. I realized fairly early on that it was not a term that I identified with. And how did that come about? I was having too much sex with men. Mm, okay. So it didn't really fit. 
and the dykes were a lot more tolerant, uh, at least more of the dykes were tolerant of that sort of behavior than the lesbians. Okay, All so right. you identified more as a, a le- with, with the dyke community, you would mm-hmm. say, then. When I first came out, I was sort of, um, I was sort of riding in a number of different carts. Because I did do the professional lesbian thing. I was a financial planner and an investment manager in the late 80s and early 90s. And that required professional lesbian. And I also came out, got involved early on in the mainstream queer political circle with the Human Rights Campaign. There were the Human Rights Campaign Fund back then when I first got involved. That was a long time ago. Um, But I got involved with them because they threw great parties. And I wanted to throw great parties. And they were the people throwing great parties. And then I found myself, you know, heavily involved in that. And that was very corporate. And that's where I realized that I was not a lesbian. Hmm. um, And the lesbians didn't like me. I was fat. I was poor. I was leather. Um, there was just too many things that was, I was different from them. And that's where it's like, oh, I, one of these things is not like the other and y'all are no fun. <laughs> um, got it, got you know, it's it. fun in a different way. Like, yeah. you know, I had a really good time, you know, driving the, the golf cart, selling, selling cocktails at the golf tournaments, but that's a whole different story. And then, you know, I also produce a lot of women's music concerts when I first came out. Um, that was sort of my hobby before I got involved in the leather contest, leather contest circuit. I produced, you know, all kinds of women's music. It's sort of where I, I learned and honed some of my production skills. And, you know, it's just the, the whole lesbian social circle, you know, the muses had dances at the Waverly, we used to call it the Waverly Lesbian Church. Um, in their little hall, and um, I was like, these are not the people I want to date. Mm-hmm. And then I knew a bunch of leather men because I had been on the board of directors of the Gay and Lesbian Community Center of Baltimore with some of these leather guys. Um, so I knew about leather. Command had just formed back then, Corps of Marylanders making a noticeable difference in leather. Um, so I knew, all, you know, knew the leather thing was a thing, mm-hmm. but I didn't know any women that were leather they just they weren't hanging around until 1991 when i went as a you know a professional gay with hrc and also i used to write columns every now and then for the baltimore gay paper which is now uh, what do they call it now it's just got a whole different name now it was baltimore gay paper back in the day and I, I figured out early on if there was some kind of protest or a conference that I wanted to go to, I convinced the paper that they should pay for it if mm-hmm. I wrote a story and took pictures. Okay. Um, so I convinced them to send me to the National Lesbian Conference. And there turned out to be a little le- sort of mini Leather Dyke conference within this larger National Lesbian Conference. And that really is where I met the people that put my leather journey as um, cliche a term as that is really got that started and uh, with connections I made there that I still am very close you know somebody that I sent a Facebook message to today that I met that weekend and co-founded a club with wow um, I messaged them today so yeah that's how long I have been in the leather community since that weekend since that 1991 weekend yep, first week in April wow 
in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, what were some of like the most memorable moments of that conference for you? Like what made it stick? What made it stick? Um, well, Master Kiki threw a party at the Atlanta Eagle and being in a leather bar. And I met at that party, I met Kay Hallinger, who was International Ms. Leather, 1991. You know, she was there and she was, you know, the butchest woman I had ever met. And she was head to toe with leather. And I was I was in love. And then I found <laughs> out what stone butch meant. And I was like, oh, OK, so I could flirt with you, though. She's like, oh, yeah, you can flirt with me. We can hug. Like, okay, we can hug. Wait, what's stone butch mean? Um, somebody that doesn't want to, that is, um, we have whole different words for it now. Um, okay. Basically, somebody that's not sexual. Oh. In so 1991, like a- she called, self-identified herself as, I'm stone butch, honey. There's a great book called Stone Butch Blues. Um, if you want to delve in a little bit of uh, stone butch stone butch culture interesting i had no idea that that was a whole uh, culture yeah stone yep. butch blues it sounds like a like a cool guitar song that we can sing around the campfire though <laughs> indeed um so meeting Kay hallinger was the first time i'd ever heard that there was you know a women's leather title you know i knew that some of the male leather title holders were at pride every year mm. but meeting Kay hallinger was the first time i had met a female leather title holder which was just super cool i followed around like a puppy all weekend and she made sure i got invited to the private parties so it worked out and i got to play that weekend and i did have some sex that weekend just not with k but you know there was that the the pickup ride on the the being the being in the back of the pickup truck k's pickup truck on the way to the play party at cherry omega's house mate cherry's not with us anymore Mm. but Cherry used to throw great parties at her house. And we crammed a lot of people into that house that weekend. You know, I've, I've heard this from um, other other guests who's come on the show that, like, back in the day, house parties were, like, really, a, like, something that happened a lot. And I don't really hear that. Maybe I'm not in the right circles, but I don't know if that happens as often as it used to. Well, we didn't have public dungeons, so uh-huh. you didn't really have a choice. You know, um, the Sanctuary of a Dark Angel in Atlanta hadn't opened yet. You know, there wasn't a public play space to go to. And the leather bars, you know, the guy in back room, but, you know, where women were welcome in some of the leather bars, most of us didn't try to go in the back room after midnight because, you know, we didn't need to. And give our give our you know give our siblings their space. We don't have to be everywhere all the time. Hmm. You know, I've and I just don't go to the bars that you know aren't leather dyke friendly that are leather bars. Um, but thankfully, most of the bar leather bars that I've been to have been like fine with it. Okay. Um, but we still, even if the bars had a play space, that usually the play space it, we weren't interested in having that argument. Right. Right. We played somebody's house. Got it. So what kind of things happened at this first play party that you went to? Are you well, allowed I, to say? I, got, I mean, I can talk about the things that I was involved in. Sure. Um, I was still I was still exploring whether it was top or bottom. When I first came out, I thought I was a bottom. You know, sort of I thought I would identify as an androgynous bottom. 
and I became a butch top because we needed them. And it um, got me laid way more often in that presentation. I was like, oh, well, this is easy. I can do this. Hmm. This works for me. I've been a tomboy all my life. I can do this. So I got my butt spanked by a very muscular butch top. Um, while he's bent over a kitchen counter, there was a lot of piss play in the in the tub shower. Yes. I was unfortunately I didn't get to be a part of that, but you know they pretty much all different people were p- pissing on people in the tub, and you know there were only but two bathrooms, so you go in and go to the bathroom, and they you know didn't matter who was peeing in the in the toilet, and if they you know sometimes they'd invite you in, and sometimes they you know they just. We're like, okay, well, you know, we're going to go on about our business. You go on about your business. And people did, you know. And then Cherry had a bunch of different things. She was a carpenter by trade and an electrician. She, I think she was a union electrician. But she was very handy and built a lot of stuff. And there were several St. Andrew's crosses throughout the house. They didn't have, there was no sling at that party. But there were a couple of different beds that were rigged for bondage. And then there were two different hassocks that were being used as spanking benches. So there was, you know, and there were um, eye bolts screwed in the corner of several door frames. Wow. So, you know, I think she had managed to create like a dozen PlayStations inside her, you know, basic suburban house. Three bedroom, two bath with back patio. There were a couple of play spaces. She had a very wooded piece of property. So, there, you know. You didn't have to be clothed to go outside, but you, you did have to be a little quiet. I mean, the whole thing sounds hot. <laughs> yeah. And Friday night that weekend, they had this, like, rented a warehouse, put a bunch of erotic art on the wall, invited all the local leather people and everybody that was at the conference that was um, wanted to come for the leather thing or the sex positive end of the, the lesbians that were there. Some of them came, too. And they had a erotica performance, readings, some live vocalists. They had a little show, including this woman, and she was she was European, and she had this trench coat on and a saxophone, and that's it. And she was fantastic. What a and, time! Yeah, and it was the first time I really saw a fire play. Um, somebody did a fire play scene as part of the show. There was some really hot, dirty poetry. <laughs> so that was that night. I mean, it sounds sexual, but it also kind of seems like a cultural experience at the same time. Very, very. Um, and, you know, some of the art on the walls was soft. Some of it was hardcore, kinky photographs. But yeah. And then there was some other sculptures and a wide variety of different kinds of art. But it was really cool in this raw warehouse space. It was it was super cool. But the most memorable part of the National Lesbian Conference was the, I don't, I don't know if it was called Leather 101 or BDSM 101. It was put on by the local leather group represented by uh, MP Breslin and her boy at the time, Jen. They gave an SM 101 and... The lesbian organizers of the National Lesbian Conference put it in a room that was too small. You know, they had, uh, there were too many attendees. So I'm late because I'm always late. I'm late for class and I'm running across the hotel because I'm like, of course, this class that I'm late for is at the far end of the hotel. So I start running down the hallway and I come around the corner 
and I realized that there's like wall to wall leather dykes coming direct. I'm like nice. top dead in my tracks before I run into this pack of leather <laughs> dykes coming down the hall who have decided that this room is too small and we're off to commandeer the grand ballroom for our class. So they did. Um, so I got swept up in that. And at the end of the class, MP asked if anybody had questions, comments, what have you, and opened the floor. And this woman, um, who was named Karen Bullock at the time, she became Karen Bullock Jordan and now is um, M. Kali Hashiki and lives in Oakland, California. She stood up and said, you know, I'm Karen. I'm from Washington, D.C., and we really should start a, a group there. And her partner, Naria Jordan, who now lives in San Diego, uh, she was one of the Southern California leather women down there and dear friend stood up and said you know we're together in this uh, another woman stood up and said you know i live in one of the dc suburbs i'm in we had another dc suburb stand up i ended up having relationships with both of those two women and then i stood up and said well my name's glenda Ryder. i live in baltimore and it's not that far uh, <laughs> so i started driving to dc once a week every thursday for a group that we founded, the four or five of us that were in that room, we called ourselves the control queens of a group known as Lesberados, Washington, D.C. And it existed from 1991 to 1993. So broke apart in 1993 um some class issues uh unfortunately uh, some race issues and also some really ugly breakups among members of the group mm. that that was yeah. really what sunk the group was uh unable to behave nicely to each other after bad breakups yeah that'll do it for sure um, but it's I it would be I would be remiss to not be honest about the fact that we also did struggle with some race and class issues. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, well, I, I want to kind of I, I'm doing some math in my head right now. I definitely want to go forward with this organization because I know it goes it goes further. But so between 1991, when you discover this whole leather dyke culture up until 1992 where now you're the first miss eagle leather ever uh, you must have dove head first like i've always been a jump in the deep end of the pool <laughs> with little lead booties on kind of person <laughs> i mean like how does that happen between in one year you just like become the first miss eagle leather ever well miss baltimore eagle specifically okay um I knew the guy, the Baltimore Eagle, when it opened, it invited, all right, do you remember when I said that Kiki um, organized a party at the Atlanta Eagle? Yeah. During mm -hmm. the lesbian conference in 91. Mm -hmm. Well, Wes Decker was a manager at the Atlanta Eagle, and when a guy named Tom Keipel decided to open the Baltimore Eagle, he invited Wes to be his manager, um, and Wes remembered Kay Hallinger and what that having that women's uh, meet and greet for the international Ms. Leather title holder at the Eagle felt like, and he's like, I want, we need to have a women's title too, Tom. And Tom's like, well, okay, you're the manager. If you want to do it, you do it. So 
I had become friends with them, the Eagle had been open for a couple of years before they, they had the men's contest for the first anniversary of the bar. And I think the women's contest came, you know, a little bit after that. Uh, okay. So I had been friends with the guys that opened the bar because you know, I was involved with the Gay and Lesbian Community Center of Baltimore. I was on the board of the Chase Brexton Clinic, um, which is our queer health center. I was involved with the Human Rights Campaign Fund, Human Rights Campaign. And all of that was involved, basically, I was on the development end of things, you know, doing the fundraising. So all the bar owners in town knew me because I was constantly asking them for money and liquor. <laughs> okay. Um, I love it. And I was also flirting hot and heavy with the woman who sold advertising for the Baltimore Gay Paper. And she liked hanging out at the Eagle. So I spent a lot of time um, stalking her in Wes Decker's office on one premise or another. That was community business. Wes, we need to tie. <laughs> I knew when she was there selling ads because um, she could drop by every week because they were a big advertiser in the paper. So she'd check in on them very regularly. And, you know, the bartender would let me know when that was going to be. So I would conveniently come by the bar and, you know, we'd end up, you know, Wes would be like, hey, Glenda Terry's upstairs. You should come up and join us. Like, I think that's a great idea. (laughs) Uh, Terry and I never did have a relationship, but she was an integral part of me ending up with the title. Because that's why I started hanging out at the Baltimore Eagle, because I was chasing her. (laughs) I love that. So at what point does competing, like that option even come on the table for you? And like, what goes through your head where you're like, yeah, I I, I can do that. Like, well, Wes asked me and I'm like, oh, hell yeah, that sounds like a blast. (laughs) So what did you have to do? Uh, just it was you know what i what i call the international mr drummer format a woman named audrey joseph basically invented the format when she was one of the producers of the international mr drummer contest and that basically it was interview jockstrap or in women's in the women's title circuit um hotware hotware okay. which is paired with usually paired with the pop question then you've got the speech paired with your formal wear and then a fantasy, leather fantasy, leather king fantasy set to music. Okay, uh, that wow. is, you know, a lot of people don't realize that that was invented as the international Mr. Drummer formula because the IML didn't have the fantasy. Drummer had the fantasy because Drummer was a, you know, Drummer was a, a sex mag. Of course, they're going to want to have some yeah. sexy, fa- you know, fantasy part of it. Right. And then when international Ms. Leather was founded, Audrey was the original you know, producer of that worked close with the board of directors of that organization. So when she just like, okay, well, here's the format. And they're like, oh, we like that. Um, So that's how that format, you know, a lot of the leather contests across the country use the format that Audrey Joseph created. Yeah, I think my Mr. Bullet Leather competition had that format too. And I remember finding out that we had to do a fantasy and I, I found out like, the day before, I was like, wait, we have a fantasy? What does that even mean? And they explained to me, I was like, shit, I don't know what I'm going to do. I went to sleep. I had a kinky ass dream and I woke up the next morning and I said, I know what I'm going to do. <laughs> do you remember your fantasy for the competition? I sure do. 
my fantasy was from Fantasia, Disney's Fantasia, um, and I was the I was Mickey Mouse, the mi- mischievous sorcerer's apprentice, and basically, I created a bottom to play with, uh, oh. and then I got caught because <laughs> I was a switch. Um, I was more switchy back then. Now I'm a really wimpy bot on the bottom. Uh, yeah, okay. I, I fired more top than bottom, though. Um, I do enjoy a good service scene with the right top or dominant. But I was a little bit more of a bottom back then. Um, so that was the fantasy. I love it. I love it. Okay, so you ha- you end up getting that. T- oh, and by the way, when we were talking about this earlier, I just have to point out your competition. Well, you were getting the title of Miss Baltimore Eagle. In February of 1992, I was being born. I love that. Um, That's so, awesome. And I wonder, I, I just want to know how close, like, we have to find out the exact day, because I wonder if it was, like, around the same time. That would be crazy. Well, you know, February is a short month. Yeah. Is it? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I was born February 15th, 1992. So I would flip if... If your competition was on the fifth, oh, that man. would be crazy. <laughs> uh, you know, somebody must know. So if, if you're listening to this podcast right now and anyone knows, DM me. Let me know. <laughs> I wonder if Naria knows. I'll have to ask. I'll have to message Naria and ask her. That would be crazy. When that she comes hilarious. back from her cruise. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's bounce back to your um, Lesberado. So Lesberados breaks up. And what comes out of Lesberados? Well, Lesberados had a few really fabulous things. Lesberados was, you know, it was a really great group. We started doing weekly meetings and education and then ended up doing every other week. And we used to have some great parties. And we did a lot of education. We did worked with Whitman Walker Health Clinic, which is the queer health clinic in D.C., and did some SM 101 education with them. There was a lot of good times, and we um, we participated as a group, as a marching unit for the 1993 March on Washington. Wow, that was that was pretty, and hosted a bar night at the DC Eagle for that weekend. So, so that it was like a lot of cool. good things came out of that. Yeah, that it really group. did. And then in 1993, it you know not long after that March on Washington, the group fell apart. And then out of that came a group called Samazons and a group called FIST, Females Investigating Sexual Terrain, which exists still to this day. Samazons lasted for a number of years and then sort of had a second round a decade later and lasted for a few years. FIST has had a, been continuously operating from then until now. So are you a founding member of FIST yes, as well? Yes, I'm a founding member of FIST. I have been co-chair on and off through the years. And what is the whole like mission of FIST? Like- it's a uh, women's leather backpatch club um, with a very um, broad, you know, very big tent definition of women. Okay. We have always um, taken the position that trans women are women because, uh, duh, they're women. No. Um and our our sort of take on transmasculine siblings was that, you know, it was theirs to choose when this didn't feel like home anymore. So that sort of um, now the language to define all of that has changed like every five years, every five to 10 years. We've had to completely change the language. But who has been welcomed to be a full member of FIST has never changed. Um, just the, the, the language has changed constantly, which has been kind of in 
you know, it's been a learning curve for all of us as we've tried right. to, um, you know, respect all of our siblings, our sisters and folks that identify otherwise. Um, it's an educational organization. It's a social organization. It's a community service organization. We host parties. We held some epic hospitality parties at the International Miss Leather Weekends through the years. Our anniversary pool party, which has been in for like five different pools around Baltimore um, through the years as people have moved. And we've also held a lot of kind of scene auctions to raise money for charity and done all kinds of things. Uh, we sponsored the boot blacks and very, you know, sometimes at events um, have been sponsors of a variety of different events that have meet and, you know have meet and greets at them so basically try to give a touchstone for women for leather dykes that you know like we used to always have a get together at IML you know just like you know Imsel would have one Fist would have one just to give you know that handful of leather dykes in his, you know in 10,000 leather men be like okay we might not run into each other if we don't set a time and place where we're gonna. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's so that's true. one of the things that I think this is given as a gift to the national and international leather community has been, you know, I like throwing parties, so give me a reason. And, you know, a lot of my fist sisters and siblings like to come along. And we've we've had some internationally renowned educators in our ranks we had a big paper mache fist on the back of a pickup truck for the Pride Parade in Baltimore for a few years, it, nice. and then it resided at the Leather Archives and Museum for a while. Wow, um, that's awesome! <laughs> we've always tried to have a sense of humor. Now, are you still like pretty active with them today? Then um, I was until recently. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not as active right now. I mean, that's a huge number of years that you've put time and dedication into that that group, I'm sure. Yeah. And, so. you know, I've moved away from Baltimore a couple of times and have been less active in those periods. But I always seem to come back to Baltimore. So apparently I belong yeah. here for now. And when I'm here, I've been active in the in the groups. Um, you know, sometimes I've sort of had to reactivate it a little bit of the uh, sort of Blues Brothers vibe to it. It's like, hey, let's get the band back together, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we've had periods where Fist was more active and less active. And we're in a, a more active period right now for the last couple of years. Now, I know you're involved with like a million other organizations because I have a list here <laughs> the size of the Bible. Uh, but <laughs> but what, what are some of uh, uh, some other organizations that have like really meant a lot for you to be involved in over the years? Um, well, I was partnered with Sarah Humble when she was the first American leather woman in 1994. So the American Brotherhood um, title system, the American Brotherhood weekend, has always been very near and dear to my heart. In, until uh, from 1994 until um, 2013, I hadn't missed an American Leather Woman contest. Um, I, whatever was going on in the world, I always made sure to support that event, to support that title because Sarah had put so much into establishing it as its um, inaugural title holder. And I went along for that ride. Sarah was very, um, I self-identifies as a shy introvert and had no intention of running for the American Leather Woman title. The rest of the FIST board of directors forced her into it. Um, 
and she won. And yeah. so she went on one event by herself, came home, looked me dead in the eye and said, this is your fault. Um, <laughs> you are coming with me or I am never going anywhere. I am not doing this unless you come Aww. with me and do this with me. I'm like, all right, I'm in. My two of my favorite words in the English language are road trip. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the American Brother and the American Brotherhood weekend is uh, going to be in Chicago in October. Actually, a fellow, um, I don't know if he stills out in L.A., but has some connections out there. Stephen Carlisle is the new owner and lead producer of the American Brotherhood weekend. And it's a really fabulous time to go to Chicago. They have the event at the Leather Archives and Museum and at Touche. And it's just, it's a great, it's a smaller um, title circuit than, say, International Mr. Leather, but it's full of passion. Mm. And it's been, it's been all over the place. It was in D.C. for the longest time. And then when Dean Ogren took it over for three years running, we went after Katrina. We went to New Orleans in July. Or maybe it was August. I don't know. It was New Orleans in the summer. I was like, Dean, you know that I am loyal to the core to American Brotherhood Weekend if I am the American Leather Woman because I am here in New Orleans in this heat. And he's yeah. like, yes, yes, I know. <laughs> so that's certainly one of the organizations that's nearest and dearest to my heart still to this day. I'm one of the organizations I'm proudest of having been part of was when they first put the board of the Leather Leadership Conference together. They asked me to be on that board, and I was in an immediate yes. I was edu- education feeds my soul. I loved I love to teach. I love to learn, um, explore new things, and I'd like to make sure that it's available to everyone and that everyone sees themselves represented in the people that are teaching. Absolutely. So it's important to me to be involved in, you know, at the time to make sure that leather leadership, you know, tried to bring that to the leather community. It was founded by a fellow named John Weiss out of New York City, and his goal was sort of to make it the leather communities creating change, which is the NGLTF's National Gay and Lesbian Task Force Annual Training Conference. And it's like, you know, no, we're not going to teach you how to throw a flogger. We're going to teach you how to, how to teach an SM101 class. We're going to teach you how to throw an event, um, how to run, you know, how to have a play space and not get raided because you didn't file the right papers with zoning. So it meant a lot to me to build the nuts and bolts of showing a community, build a community that was going to last, you know, and actually, you know, I think that we're more than a community. We really are a culture. I mean, we have our own museum, two of them. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. with brick and mortar museums, uh, Carter Johnson Leather Library and Collection in Evansville, Indiana. And I've been involved with them since it was in Jill and Bye's basement. That's another organization that's near and dear to my heart. I was on the board of the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom for a very long time and was a, a representative for our local leather organ and kink organizations to the national. Um, when I wasn't on the board, I was just a, a rep an organizational rep for an even longer period of time. And that was sort of, you know, the same thing. One of the big projects that I worked on with NCSF, when I was with Levi Halberstadt, uh, he was my boy at the time, and we went to one of the NGLTF Creating Change conferences. And in a workshop class about smart goal setting, we basically created the Consent Counts Project that NCSF ended up taking in-house and running with. 
And the teacher of the class is like, you know, this was just supposed to be a dramatic exercise. I'm like, lady, I ain't got time for fake shit. Um, if I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to go through the process of learning how to do dynamic goal setting, I'm going to put it to work on behalf of my, my community. And this is what we need. Our, so, yeah. you know, our sexuality is the only sexuality that's still mm-hmm. criminalized because consent is not a defense to assault and battery in most states. Um, and, you know, this whole Spanner case in England showed that consent mm. is not a defense in, in the European communities either. So this smart goal setting class was the perfect time to start doing something about it domestically here. And the Consent Counts Project was born. And then we took the idea that we came up with in this 90-minute class to the Leather Community um, Lunch Gathering at Creating Change that year. And um, Pat Bailey, who was International Ms. Leather in 1995, was working for Out and Equal, I think, at the time, or one of her other. She'd been a professional queer forever. And she one of her she had a professional queer job that have, had her traveling all over the country. So she did a survey, you know, whatever mm-hmm. town she was in, she basically did the consent count survey with everybody to find out what the community thought about consent and consent culture and you know, where were we trying to get the pulse of the community? Okay, where are we? Um, before we try to go to the politicians to change these laws, we need to get ourselves organized and on the same page. And then we worked with Judy Guerin and Dick Cunningham. Unfortunately, he's passed very recently. They took the project, NCSF had it for a while, and then they took it on personally and, and sheltered it for a while. And then I'm not sure who's housing it right now, but the Consent Counts Project has finally gotten some model legislation passed. Wow. Um, and this has been like a 15-year, 20, 20-year 20 project. 15-year project. Because Levi and I got together um, in 2005. So sometime, it was started sometime shortly thereafter, 2005-ish. And just now... And a lot of that was the fact that Dick Cunningham was a very brilliant lawyer. Um, and mm. through the, his work and community activists' work and the Woodhull Foundation and a lot of different hands have touched this pie. But consent counts got kicked off because Levi and I didn't want to come up with something fake for this class. Yeah. Wow. Wow. It sounds like you are really passionate about leadership and education and really like furthering the legacy that the community is like has been and is going to be absolutely but on the other hand i you know uh the late Raylan galena coined a term for sarah humble and myself when we were opening a play space make play happen and that is you know that is my um my motto in many many things that i do in the community it's like okay we also when, when we opened that play space, in the largest font on the entire page was the phrase, fun is a core value, in all caps. Now, the first rule on, the, on that document was, your mom's not here, clean up after yourself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so in addition to trying to build the minds um, uh-huh. and the bones and the structure of organized community, I also, I want to have a good time. I want to throw the party. And, you know, Sarah and I had gone to 
an event in Atlanta, Georgia, and had the opportunity to visit something called Sanctuary of a Dark Angel, which was a magnificent play space in Atlanta that had been opened by two men who were both interior designers by trade. When I say this was a beautiful space. Um, so we we wrote the business plan for Playhouse Studios and Gallery by the Dome Light at 85 miles an hour. And I think it was I-85 going through South Carolina. It's like, if they can do this in Atlanta, Georgia, we can certainly do this in Baltimore. We, I mean, it's got to be easier to get away with it in Baltimore than Georgia. Um, <laughs> so we came home and then we did. We found, we found a space. Um, we convinced this guy, this this guy, to sign a lease. I think he gave us the space and gave it to us at a ridiculously low price. We had a forty five hundred square foot brownstone that our initial lease was a thousand dollars a month. Was, oh my god! It was triple net, and it is in Baltimore, but it was a thousand dollars a month. That's fucking great. Um, when I turned the space over to somebody else because I wanted to move to California. And so I made one of the major mistakes I've made in my life. Um, I turned the space over to this other person. Our rent was $1,075 a month. They never, and, and the building changed hands. And this, the wow. second owners didn't raise the rent on us. I think they were all amused by what we were doing. <laughs> I really do. I think, I think, I think, wow. I really think that the reason we got that this, that our first landlord, who was this younger man, it was like second or third generation, an old Baltimore property, commercial property owning family. He really, his, his main job though, he had a bank. He had a bank okay. with a couple of branches and did all commercial lending. And that was his gig. And this whole really So he wasn't thing. hurting for money. No, sure, and he like... thought we were like these cute little dykes that want, you know, want to have this clubhouse. I think he got told stories about it on the golf course and his friends all got titillated. Whatever. He <laughs> never raised our rent. He rented us 4,500 square feet and a basement. We didn't wow. even know we had a basement till the phone company showed up. And wanted to connect the phone. It's like, well, we know this building. It had belonged to the Baltimore Sun Papers. They're like, no, the phone exchange is in the basement. Where Sarah and I look at each other and we're like, basement? <laughs> and we called our landlord. We called called Michael and said, uh, basement? He's like, oh, I don't know. Call the Sun Papers. See if they'll give you the key. <gasps> this so is we awesome. tracked down a key. And then we had a basement, too. And we never paid a penny in rent on the basement. Fuck, that's amazing. I, I really think the guy dined out on stories about these about this sex club that these in one of his buildings. I, I really do. I think he dined out on, on titillating stories about us. But whatever. It, it yeah. meant that Playhouse got to exist because we really didn't make a whole lot of money. And then there was the year it snowed every Saturday in December and wiped out the entire Christmas party season. I'm trying to make rent that January. We're like, we had a, you know, I, yeah. I had a, I had to liquidate what was left of my IRA to pay rent that year, that month. Well, but it was worth it. I'd do it again. Well, Glenda, we are, we're approaching one hour here. So why don't we take a little break here? And when we come back, let's keep talking about how you're making play happen. Sounds good. Well, that is going to mark our part one for today. Stay tuned for next week's episode, part two with Glenda Ryder. As always, you can find me on Instagram and Patreon as Leather Talk Mr. Bullet and Twitter as Brandon Bullet LA. Thanks again for listening. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay kinky.
Okay.